Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiac List podcast for some Hemingway short stories. We're in the filler, we're in the um, filler episodes. And can I just say, what a great place to be. Filler episodes. Um, we're going to read some Hemingway short stories. We're going to muck around for about 16 days uh, until we're ready to move on to War and Peace on January 1st. I just thought... Um, I don't know, it's nice to have a little break from the list for a couple of weeks. And these short stories are, you know, about a chapter's long, so they're, they're decent lengths. But after that, the poems are really, really short. So we'll have about 10 days of very short podcasts. And I'm going to just claim that, you know, I don't want to have a break from doing the podcast but a couple of weeks with very short episodes where it's just a sort of a, a five or a ten minute job, that would actually be really good, just to refresh me, ready for next year's big, big challenge. So, um, oh yeah, for the duration of this, just up until New Year's, until we start War and Peace, I'm flipping up, you might have noticed in the um, discussion forum, I'm flipping up the way the episode goes. So what it will do is I'll start by reading the chapter, and then I'll read the discussion. And the chapter and the same discussion for that chapter is in one podcast. Um, both methods have their pros and cons. Um, you know, flipping it either way. Um, but for because these are quite short, these stories and the poems, you guys can sort of read them by yourselves, make your own discussion about it, and then I'll just do it all in one podcast. All right, so I actually didn't get a chance to read the story yet. So this is me reading it for the first time, and then I'll go ahead and read your comments about it. It's called Up in Michigan. Oh, that's my phone going biddy biddy. I better probably silence that. Nope, wrong button. Where's the button I want? That's the one. All right. It's called Up in Min. Uh, no, it's not. It's called Up in Michigan. It's by Ernest Hemingway. And it goes like this. Jim Gilmore came to Horton's Bay from Canada. He bought the blacksmith shop from old man Horton. Jim was short and dark with big mustaches and big hands. He was a good horseshoer and did not look much like a blacksmith, even with his leather apron on. He lived upstairs above the blacksmith's shop and took his meals at A.J. Smith's. Liz Coates worked for Smith's. Mrs. Smith, who was a very large, clean woman, said Liz Coates was the neatest girl she'd ever seen. Liz had good legs and always wore clean gingham aprons and Jim noticed that her hair was always neat behind. He liked her face because it was so jolly, but he never thought about her. Liz liked Jim very much. She liked the way he walked over from the shop and often went to the kitchen door to watch for him to start down the road. She liked it about his moustache. She liked it about how white his teeth were when he smiled. She liked it very much that he didn't look like a blacksmith. She liked it how much A.J. Smith and Mrs. Smith liked Jim. One day she found that she liked it was it the way the hair was black on his arms and how white they were above the tanned line when he washed up in the wash basin outside the house. Liking that made her feel funny. Horton's Bay, the town, was only five houses on the main road between Boyne City and Chavoy. There was the general store and a post office with a high false front, and maybe a wagon hitched out in front, 
Smith's house, Stroud's house, Fox's house, Horton's house and Van Hoosen's house. The houses were in a big grove of elm trees and the road was very sandy. There was farming country and timber each way up the road. Up the road a ways was the Methodist church and down the road, the other direction, was the township school. The blacksmith shop was painted red and faced the school. A steep, sandy road ran down the hill to the bay through the timber. From Smith's back door you could look out across the woods that ran down to the lake and across the bay. It was very beautiful in the spring and summer. The sky blue and bright and usually white caps on the lake beyond the point from the breeze blowing in from Charvoy and Lake Michigan. From Smith's back door Liz could see or barges way out in the lake going toward Boyne City. She, When she looked at them, they didn't seem to be moving at all, but if she went in and dried some more dishes and then came out again, they would be out of sight beyond the point. All the time now Liz was thinking about Jim Gilmore. He didn't seem to notice her very much. He talked about this shop to A.J. Smith, and about the Republican Party, and about James B. G. Blaine, in the evenings he read the Toledo Blade and the Grand Rapids paper by the lamp in the front room and went out spearing fish in the bay with a jack light with A.J. Smith. In the fall he and Smith and Charlie Wyman, Wyman took a wagon and went grubs, axes, their rifles and two dogs and went on a trip, sorry, a wagon and a tent, grubs, axes, their rifles and two dogs and went on a trip to the pine plains beyond Vanderbilt deer hunting. Liz and Mrs. Smith were cooking for four days for them before they started. Liz wanted to make something special for Jim to take but she didn't finally because she was afraid to ask Mrs. Smith for the eggs and flour and afraid if she bought them Mrs. Smith would catch her cooking. It would have been all right with Mrs. Smith but Liz was afraid. All the time Jim was gone on the deer hunting trip Liz thought about him. It was awful while he was gone she couldn't sleep well from thinking about him, but she discovered it was fun to think about him too. If she let herself go, it was better. The night before they were to come back, she didn't sleep at all because it was all mixed up in a dream about not sleeping and really not sleeping. When she saw the wagon coming down the, she felt weak and sick sort of inside. She couldn't wait till she saw Jim and it seemed as though everything would be alright when he came. The wagon stopped outside under the big elm, and Mrs. Smith and Liz went out. All the men had beards, and there were three deer in the back of the wagon, their thin legs sticking off stiff over the edge of the wagon box. Mrs. Smith kissed Alonzo, and he hugged her. Jim said hello, Liz, and grinned. Liz hadn't known just what would happen when Jim got back, but she was sure it would be something. Nothing had happened. The men were just home. That was all. Jim pulled the burlap sacks off the deer and Liz looked at them. One was a big buck. It was stiff and hard to lift out of the wagon. Did you shoot it, Jim? Liz asked. Yeah, ain't it a beauty? Jim got it onto, onto his back to carry it to the smokehouse. That night, Charlie Women stayed to supper at Smith's. It was l- too late to get back to Charlevoix. The men washed up and waited in the front room for supper. Ain't there something left in that crock, Jimmy? A.J. Smith asked, and Jim went out to the wagon in the barn and fetched in the jug of whiskey the men that had taken hunting with them. 
It was a four-gallon jug, and there was quite a little slopped back and forth in the bottom. Jim took a long <clears throat> pull on his way back to the house. It was hard to lift such a big jug up to drink out of it. Some of the whiskey ran down on his shirt front. The two men smiled when Jim came in with the jug. AJ Smith sent for glasses, and Liz brought them. AJ poured out three big shots. Well, he is looking at you, AJ, said Charlie Women. That damn big buck, Jimmy, said AJ. Here's all the ones we missed, AJ, said Jim, and downed his liquor. Tastes good to a man. Nothing like it this time of year, for what ails you. How about another, boys? Here's how, AJ. Down the creek, boys. Here's to next year. Jim began to feel great. He loved the taste and the feel of whiskey. He was glad to be back to a comfortable bed and warm food in the shop. He had another drink. The men came in to supper, feeling hilarious, but acting very respectable. Liz sat at the table after she put on the food and ate with the family. It was a good dinner. The men ate seriously. After supper, they went into the front room again, and Liz cleaned up with Mrs. Smith. Then Mrs. Smith went upstairs, and pretty soon, Smith came out and went upstairs too. Jim and Charlie were still in the front room. Liz was sitting in the kitchen next to the stove, pretending to read a book and thinking about Jim. She didn't want to go to bed yet, because she knew Jim would be coming out, and she wanted to see him as he went out, so she could take the way he looked up to bed with her. She was thinking about him hard, and then Jim came out. His eyes were shining, and his hair was a little rumpled. Liz looked down at her book. Jim came over back over back of her chair and stood there, and she could feel him breathing, and then he put his arm around her, her breasts felt plump and firm and the nipples were erect under his hands. Liz was terribly frightened. No one had ever touched her, but she thought, he's come to me finally. He's really come. She held herself stiff because she was so frightened and did not know how, did not know anything else to do. And then Jim held her tight against the chair and kissed her. It was such a sharp, aching, hurting feeling that she thought she couldn't stand it. She felt Jim right through the back of the chair and she couldn't stand it and then something clicked inside of her and the feeling was warmer and softer. Jim held her tight, hard against the chair and she wanted it now and Jim whispered, come on for a walk. Liz took her coat off the peg on the kitchen wall and they went out the door. Jim had his arm around her and every little way they stopped and pressed against each other and Jim kissed her. There was no moon and they walked ankle-deep in the sandy road through the trees down to the dock and the warehouse on the bay. The water was lapping in the piles, and the point was dark across the bay. It was cold, but Liz was hot all over from being with Jim. They sat down in the shelter of the warehouse, and Jim pulled Liz close to him. She was frightened. One of Jim's hands went inside her dress and stroked over her breast, and the other hand was in her lap. She was very frightened and didn't know how he was going to go about things but she snuggled close to him. Then the hand that felt so big in her lap went away and was on her leg and started to move up it. Don't, Jim, said Liz. Jim slid the hand further up. You mustn't, Jim, you mustn't. Neither Jim nor Jim's big hand paid any attention to her. The boards were hard. Jim had her dress up and was trying to do something to her. She was frightened, but she wanted it. She had to have it, but it frightened her. You mustn't do it, Jim, you mustn't. I got to, I'm going to. 
You know we got to. No, we haven't, Jim. We ain't got to. Oh, it isn't right. Oh, it's so big and it hurts so. You can't. Oh, Jim, Jim, oh. The hemlock planks on the dock were hard and splintery and cold and Jim was heavy on her and he had her. He had hurt her. Liz pushed him. She was so uncomfortable and cramped. Jim was asleep. He wouldn't move. She worked out from under him and sat up and straightened her skirt and coat and tried to do something with her hair. Jim was sleeping with his mouth a little open. Liz leaned over and kissed him on the cheek. He was still asleep. She lifted his head a little and shook it. He rolled his head over and swallowed. Liz started to cry. She walked over to the edge of the dock and looked down to the water. There was a mist coming up from the bay. She was cold and miserable and everything felt gone. She walked back to where Jim was lying and shook him once more to make sure she was crying. Jim, she said, Jim, please, Jim. Jim stirred and curled a little tighter. Liz took off her coat and leaned over and covered him with it. She tucked it around him neatly and carefully. Then she walked across the dock and up the steep sandy road to go to bed. A cold mist was coming up through the woods from the bay. All right, there we go. There's the first of the short stories. Uh, Jesus. That was a bit hairy, wasn't it? Um, didn't expect to just be going straight in the deep end with uh, just a straight sort of rape scene in the first um, one. The thing I really liked, though, is the... Um, I suppose, like, the nuance in the, how well Hemingway captured all the confusion of of young Liz, where she did like this guy, but she didn't want that to happen. And then even after it happened, she has these conflicting feelings of, you know, she gives him a kiss, and then she cries, and then she covers him up, and then she leaves, and all, all, all in between. Um, seems sort of, excuse me, um, I don't know, So it's so human, isn't it? He's done that really well. Um, all right. Let's see how we went with the discussion. Did anyone have a, anything to say about this? Um, oh, yeah, I had some discussion prompts, and they were this. How does Hemingway's style feel now that you have experienced so many of his influences? I haven't had a chance to read it yet, so BYO prompts. Um, his writing style... You know, it was weird. Like, it's, it's very well-paced. At the start, I thought, this is a short story, and you're spending so long describing the surroundings. But um, it did set the scene well, too well, but also that kind of gave it that slow burn sort of, um, you know, it kind of um, slowly pulled you into the story rather than having a, a kind of a, a sizzling start, as they call it in primary schools. It was more of a simmering start. And then it kind of ramped up the action from there. Um, I like, there's a lot I like about that. I like that as far as I remember, I didn't tell you Liz's age, but just from her thought process in the start when she's sort of admiring this guy and thinking about all the things she likes about him, you kind of get a sense of her age of being, I'm going to say like 14, I think. Maybe she seems like a kid, sort of, to me, or like a teenager. I wonder if anyone else thought the same thing. 
Um, all right, so what, what did you guys have to say? First of all, Kutili said this, which is actually uh, going back to, oh, we're going back to of human bondage. Just wanted to give another two cents regarding yesterday's discussion. I think you guys are being too harsh on Philip. He's flawed, but who isn't? I don't think that all this time he semi-consciously craved for a normal family life he didn't have growing up and that he will be happy and content with a good spouse like Sally. Oh, sorry, I do think. <laughs> he does think all that stuff. Kutili. Uh, he? She? I can never remember <laughs> if you guys are guys or girls. Uh, I also think he will be a loving father. Just remember how he cared for that poor kid Mildred gave birth to. I think I said that right at the end of yesterday's podcast. Is like, the one thing that gives me hope is if he does have a kid, I think he'll be a really good dad, and I think that will give him more self-esteem and more um, contentedness, contentedness with his lot in life, so to speak. All right, now, let's get back on track with this Hemingway short story. Acoustic Eel says this, The sentence structure is very simple. Coming from the Somerset, it almost feels too simple. Like it's for sixth grade reading level, or it would be if it weren't about a rape. As he narrated the sex act itself on the dock, I felt like it was a very vivid graphic depiction. When I reread it, though, I was surpri surprised to realize that he didn't explicitly describe any, shall we say, anatomy, except for the mention of Liz's breasts. Her line, it's so big and it hurts, so is easily inferred, but an antecedent for it in the sentence isn't given. I felt like I watched it close up, but with a blurred box covering up the inappropriate parts. It was very skillful, the way he wrote that. It feels weird to say that that was the passage that impressed me most, but it kind of was. Yeah, he showed a lot of skill in this, just that short story. A lot of skill. Uh, I'm impressed. Uh, Laura Weistich said, Although some of the books we've read have had similarities in the story, all the writing styles have been very different. It's interesting to compare to Hemingway himself another distinct style. And Swim said the mum of fish, she said, I found the prose very clean and spare. It felt refreshing, even though the subject matter was essentially about a rape. I found up an analysis of this short story that is very good, except below that I found interesting. I can't link, but if you search up in Michigan analysis, you'll find it at amerlit.com. One of the first stories Hemingway ever wrote contradicts the stereotypes of him by dramatizing the perspective of a vulnerable girl and affirming her character while criticizing an insensitive, selfish male. Up in Michigan originated after Hemingway returned from the World War One and had been rejected by the nurse he fell in love with with an Italian hospital. Up in the wilds of northern Michigan at Hortons Bay while working in a potato harvest, he went out strolling in the evenings with a waitress described as pretty and forward by biographer Carlos Baker, who said one night their stroll ended in a mutual seduction on the chilly planking of the dock. Up in Michigan dealt so frankly and graphically with sexual intercourse that he had difficulty getting it published in the States. For that reason, it was excluded from In Our Time, which I assume is a compilation of short stories from 1925. Mrs. Smith, who was a very large, clean woman, said Liz Coates was the neatest girl she'd ever seen. Cleanliness and neatness connote moral virtues. Jim is a blacksmith, suggesting that he represents the dark physical side of the commonplace. His point of view is limited mostly to sensations. Liz had good legs, lived clean and neat. He liked her face because it was so jolly, but he never thought about her. 
Liz thinks about Jim all the time. Hemingway studied English Renaissance literature in high school, read it all his life, and quoted from it some of his titles. In that literature, deer hunting is a metaphor for sexual pursuit. While Jim is gone deer hunting, Liz feels awful and couldn't sleep well from thinking about him, but she discovered it was fun to think about him too. If she let herself go, it was better. Her infatuation feels both awful and fun. Whether it is better to let herself go with Jim is the question she decides in the affirmative. Later she may feel differently, but the story implies that it is better to experience a fall and learn from it than to remain naive and vulnerable. Moreover, what happens is virtually inevitable. The sense of biological determinism is the character of naturalism, that we must all lose our innocence sooner or later is a theme throughout Hemingway. Another ongoing theme also expressed in this early story about feeling up is the possibility of transcending a defeat or loss with a spiritual victory. The planks are hemlock, traditionally alluding to death, as in the case of the philosopher Socrates, who was condemned for corrupting the young. In an ironic inversion, Jim is far from a philosopher, and he is truly inclined to corrupt the young. He kills the infatuation of young Liz, who succumbs to the initiation but resists corruption. The death of Liz's innocence to the blacksmith is emphasised by the realism detailing her pain and discomfort as she worked her way out from under him. Now she rises above him, he wouldn't move, the drunken lout. She lifted his head a little and shook it, trying to wake him up to her needs, but the common man is unconscious. The tone of this moment blends pathos with satire in the manner of Mark Twain. It may seem that Jim has gotten away with something, but consider... He'll have to return her coat to Liz in the morning. When he does this, he may be observed raising questions in the small town. He will have to face Liz every day in the presence of the Smiths. He will not know whether Liz will tell the Smiths what happened. If she does tell them, he will be blamed, which could result in his eviction and ruin his blacksmith business. And Mrs. Smith is a very large, clean woman. Right, there you go. I think... Well, that's a pretty good analysis. I think some of it is a bit stretched. Um, a little bit of a stretch, I'd say. Like the stuff about Socrates um, and all those things at the end. Like Jim might seem like he's got away with it, but considering then all these things, it seems like you're, or whoever wrote that is trying to um, kind of manufacture the ending that they want. I would probably they say would be much more complicated and all that I would even wonder if Liz wouldn't um, still be sort of acquiescent to Jim's um, presence in the future she's confused she's going to remain confused she's probably going to feel some sense of guilt and anger and shame and um, I don't know I don't I don't think She'll just sort of dob him in or anything like that. And if anything, I think she'd probably end up maybe even still liking him in a weird way. Um, maybe. I only say that because of the end when she put the um, jacket on him. Like, she's so conflicted. She She's crying, but then she's like also trying to sort of care for him in a weird way. And she did like him to begin with, so... I don't know, maybe she'll just get confused and, and feel like she owes him something or something like that. Oh, God, what a story. That was great. I really liked that. Um, I said yesterday that I would tell you about why Hemingway is my favorite author, A, and B, 
that I'd never read any Hemingway. Well, now I have. That was the first Hemingway I've ever read. Um, was by no means the best short story I've ever read, but it was very, very good. Uh, I was going to give you an explanation of what that all meant, but I'm very tired. I'm going to put that off till tomorrow. All right, you can hold me to it. I'll remember tomorrow. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll see you tomorrow.